Good morning, church. It's great to see you all here. I invite you to stand with us. We have the opportunity to sing all as one great big choir together and lift our voices to him. Let's sing together.
be seated. Good morning. It is awesome to get to worship with you today. Emmanuel, God is with us. It is great testimony of who our God is that he sent his one and only son to come near to us, to be with us so that he might die on our behalf, rise again, and offer us life. One of the greatest things that we get to do as a body, as a community, is to celebrate new life with those who have trusted in Jesus and who are coming to profess that faith in the waters of baptism. Last hour we had a young man, this hour we have three people, and next hour we have three people, so come back next time and you get to see three more. But right now we have three that we get to celebrate with. Let's bring them out. Come on out. Tell everybody your full name, would you? Lauren Ashley Kent. That's right. And Laura Ashley Kent. Lauren, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? All right, turn this way, buddy. Now, cross your arms. Because you have believed in Jesus, it is my incredible honor to baptize you. And I do so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Walk in newness of life. <laughs> everybody. Tell us your full name. Carl Wayne Justice. Carl, are you a believer in Jesus as your Savior? Yes, I am. Amen. How about that? Because of your profession of faith, it is a privilege to baptize you. And I do so, cross your arms, I do so, I want you to grab your nose, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. believer in Jesus as your Savior? Yes. And your mother is going to baptize you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Walk in newness of life. Isn't that cool? So much fun to celebrate with these people. We get to continue to celebrate the greatness of our God. Please stand with us, and we're going to keep seeing it.
Almighty God, we will praise your name forever. And, and it, is the, it is the whole reason for everything. There is nothing greater, there is nothing that compares with the triune God. And it is the most appropriate and right thing in the world to applaud you, and we will. I, I pray we can do that now. And we often don't. We come very distracted. We, um, we find it difficult to grasp the real reason for, uh, for life, the real motivation in the busyness of days. And so I pray you reset that today. We pray it not just for us who are here, but, um, but for all those with whom we normally worship. My phone has been blowing up this morning. Our internet provider is, uh, is down, Lord. That didn't surprise you. But um, we've got some very disappointed brethren. I pray they will find this to be the richest day ever. I pray for those who are sick, those who are part of this congregation that are traveling, grieving. We ask you to bless them that they can praise your name as well. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Good morning, friends. We have spoken before about the Hebrew love of parallelism. Parallels are how Jewish writers developed depth. Um, it, it's how they rhymed. Totally serious. Hebrew writers didn't rhyme with sounds. They rhymed with ideas, right? And, and, and the repetition of the ideas is what you get to unlock that helps you understand the meaning of what they're saying. It's very subtle and it's very rich. Let me just show you one example from thousands in the Bible. Open your Bible, if you would, to Psalm 40. It's about a third of the way into your Bible. Open your Bible to Psalm 40. Uh, go to Psalms, and we're just going to read part of it. <clears throat> Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Uh, this is David uh, speaking to God. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Then I said, see, I have come. In the scroll it is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. All right, now look at the parallels. According to the, to the parallels, what does God not desire? Sacrifice, burnt offering, etc. right? You see that repeated in there? And by the way, that had to be a little bit astonishing to a Hebrew living under Moses' law because the law commands those things. But David, the author, seems to be using those offerings as a foil. It's a foil for something else, the other parallel. He's, he's dealing with sacrifices here as something rote and automatic and robotic, cold and unfeeling, that, something you just do without thought. So what's the opposite of rote traditionalism, cold-hearted traditionalism? Listening. Do you see that? The opposite of this is this. And by the way, this may be the greatest explanation of listening ever given in all of human history. Look at the parallels and look at what it teaches us about listening, right? Listening is initiated by God. You open my ears, he said. We listen to God in Scripture, in the scroll. We, we come, do you see that? We willfully move into a position of listening. We apply God's words to our lives. When he looks at the scroll, that Scripture, he says, it's about me. This applies to me. That scripture gets deep inside our souls, says David, and we live it out with delight. Isn't that great? The Holy Spirit uses David's pen to show that active living, not just information, active living is involved in listening. 
God most desires for people to listen, and that means to live out His Word. Now, look at the middle. Look at the very middle. Embedded in the middle is verse 7. And verse 7 tells us the specific thing that we have to do to begin this process of active listening and living. We come. We come to Scripture, and we apply it to our personal lives. The text is not just for other people. It's for me. It applies to me. I look at the scroll and it's about me. And this middle part tells us where to begin, how to start living in light of what we hear when we listen and what we know about God and His Word. You see how that works? Isn't that cool? Okay. Now, we looked at that just so we could get a grasp on our current study. We're studying the book of 1 Peter. Peter was as Hebrew as people come. And he did a marvelous job arranging his entire book just like David, so we could learn from the parallels. I want you to look at the flow of 1 Peter. In the, in the very first part of 1 Peter, you know they didn't write it with chapters, right? And that we added those later to keep up with things. So in the, in the first part, Peter has three big ideas, three big ideas. Self-discipline, which is, which is shown in submission, following Jesus Christ's example, and suffering for righteousness. That's the three big themes in the beginning of the book. Do you know what he has at the very end of the book, which we'll start next week? He has at the very end the same three themes put in a slightly different order, following Christ in suffering. Uh, he talks about practical submission, which requires self-discipline, and suffering for righteousness. And then right in the middle, right in the middle, chapters, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is just like David's Psalm 40. This is how we begin. This is how we start living out what we're learning as we listen, what we know about God and His, and His world. And that section, the start of chapter 4, that's our text for today. So, turning your Bibles now to the New Testament. It's the last time I'll make you turn today. Turn over to the New Testament, way, way over near the end of your Bible, to 1 Peter. Go past Hebrews, go past James, stop before 2 Peter. Go to 1 Peter, chapter 4, and let's read verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead. So that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the Spirit according to God's standards. The big idea is there in verses 1 and 2. Here's the biggest idea. We live as people who are dead to sin. By the way, that's the headline in our notes. Uh, if you look in your bulletin you got, it helps me learn if I make some notes as I go along. So there's notes there for you. Uh, and the headline there says, we live as ones finished with sin. Peter's logic is very straightforward once again. Based on parallelism. Look at it, look at it. What do, what do we learn about Jesus in what we just read? He suffered in the flesh of his humanity, which he did. He, he was Christ. Um, that's a Greek way of saying Messiah, which is a word that means rescuer. And, and he was finished with sin. Right? He lived for God's will. All right? What, is it, what does it say about us? You, you're in the flesh, right? You're rescued. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're rescued by that faith in Jesus and the implication is your remaining time on this earth should be lived for God's will. You should be finished with sin. Finished with sin is a little bit like cranial orthosis. Um, that's where a baby's head is, part of it hadn't developed quite right. The, so they, they put the helmet on. How many of you have ever seen the little kids with the helmet on 
cranial orthosis. It's a wonderful thing to correct the shape of the skull. However, let me ask you this. Once the skull has achieved its shape, is it, is it wise or appropriate for that kid to try to put that helmet back on later? No, that's absurd, right? It doesn't fit, and in fact, you can cause problems by wearing an unfitting helmet. In the same way, you believers in Jesus are now healed. Putting on sin is absurd for you. It no longer fits. You look ridiculous. Earlier in the, in the letter, Peter laid out the exact same logic. I want you to read with me from the gorgeous prose of chapter 2. Uh, join me on the underlined part of 1 Peter chapter 2. You were called to this. He's talking about suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow. And by the way, all your quotes are going to be from Isaiah 53. You should follow in his steps. Everybody, he did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We live like people who are finished with sin, dead to it. Now, of course, that, that prompts the question that you're asking in your uh, toddler imitation. Ha! Ha! Great question. Thank you for asking. Here's how we live dead to sin. Peter lays out eight life-changing practices. There are four in what we just read, and there are four in the next paragraph. All right? Here's how, we, here's how we finish with sin. Number one, avoid the lusts that make up the sinful norm. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Humanity has spent far too much time living like hell. That's what the lawless Gentiles do. They're unrestrained. And restraint, listen now, restraint's the key issue. Have you noticed this? Anytime humans want to sin, they view any blockade, any restraint on that sin as absolutely unfair. It makes them so angry. We are so childish and pitiful. It... Look, human beings are like my children when they were very little. Every one of my kids when they were small had to be trained not to run into the alley or into the street after a runaway toy. And when they were first taught that, they did not like it. They didn't care about being run over. They wanted the ball, right? right? That's us. Those are human beings. That is, the, that is the sinful norm. Just think of our terminology. It is so absurdly childish as we try and avoid restraint. So, so this, this is not how to party. People call it that. But that's actually a way to become burdened with a lifetime of regret and addiction. The, this is not a fail-safe that frees a woman from an unwanted burden. This is abortion. It's evil. It ends a life and scars others. But you try to add healthy restraints on these kinds of evils, and people get angry. These lusts are the norm. Now, notice how society always will purposefully misdefine them. Do you know why we keep changing our definitions of sin? Because it's a shell game. We want to keep changing the definitions of sin so we won't have to be restrained so that we can, we think, avoid the consequences. Now, you and I look at that shell game nonsense, we read that, and we say, what? Thank goodness we're not like that. I mean, we're not unrestrained in our behavior like that. Tell me, uh, what is your favorite food that is associated with uh, the holidays, with, with Christmas? Your favorite dessert, your favorite, I'm not going to pick on you, I'm not going to embarrass anybody. Just raise your hand, tell me, tell me one of your favorite things about Christmas. Uh, mine is 
Mine is um, peanut brittle. Why can that not be made all year? Mmm, so great. Yeah, what's one of your favorites? Angry birds. Don't eat that. That's very fuzzy. Yes, what else? What? Eggnog. Do you know what my mom does? She would get so upset because I would lose so much weight wrestling, and she would always try to fatten me up, so she came up with this thing, and she, it's really good. Take a cup of eggnog and then put a scoop of homemade vanilla ice cream in it, sprinkle a little nutmeg and cinnamon, and then whipped cream on top of that and eat it with a spoon. And basically, you've had your calories for the day. It's awesome. Um, it's really I, I recommend it. What a favorite Christmas. Somebody over here in the peanut gallery. Come on, give me something. What do you got? What do you, give me a favorite. Yeah, what do you got? Gingerbread, so yummy. Do you, like, do you like the bread or the cookies that are more crispy? Yeah. Yes, I got you. Okay, all right. <laughs> now, whatever you thought of when we were talking about these things that are favorite holiday foods, I want you to ask yourself this. Think about yourself and just ask yourself, am I completely restrained? Am I in control as I approach peanut brittle? <laughs> hmm. Horrible, horrible question. I have got to stop lying about my own lack of restraint. It's not just society out there that tries to play shell games. Gluttony is a sin. I have to call it that, period. Jesus rescued us so that we could be finished with sin. By His grace, you know what we can do? We can stop abusing good things. We, we, can, we can quit redefining our unrestrained behavior. In a word, we can be holy. Amen? So, in honor of Christ, we're going to light the candle of holiness. And as we light this candle of holiness, celebrating Jesus who is holy and who has come and who will return, pray with me, please. Father, I light this candle of holiness, and I'm reminded by the amazing scripture that you have put in my heart that, that I'm to be holy as Jesus is holy. Peter says that earlier in this letter. And I am not capable of that. Neither are my friends. But by your grace, you can change us. And you do. You infuse us with holiness. You impute righteousness to us. And by your grace, we really can avoid the lusts that are the norm for fallen humanity. And I pray that we will. In Jesus' name, amen. How can we live as people finished with sin? Number one, avoid the usual suspects, the usual lusts. Number two is the headline atop the right side of your notes. Look there. Recognize the reason for rejection and slander. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. Uh, a generation ago, Ben Patterson wrote a book that started with a really insightful story. Here was the beginning of his book. He said, he was a seasoned veteran of the Christian ministry, my first boss in the church, a respected mentor, and a dear friend. I had asked him what he had to say to younger pastors like me as he approached his retirement. It was one of those, what would you do if you had to do it over again questions. His answer came quickly, don't take it personally. Don't take what personally was my next question. He told me not to take it personally when things get tough in the church, when I'm attacked or tired or depressed. Things like that go with the territory. We're in a spiritual battle. When a soldier is shot at, he isn't shocked. His feelings aren't hurt. He doesn't peer over his foxhole at his adversary and shout, was it something I said? He expects it. He plans on it. That spiritual realism. Close quote. Do you want to be finished with sin? Know this. Until Christ returns, you are never going to be out of battle. Never. 
Years ago, there was a big battle here uh, over a moral issue in our city. And I was, getting, I was getting pretty rough treatment from groups that wanted to expand opportunities for unrestrained behavior. In all sincerity, 1 Peter 4.3 was basically their operation list. They wanted unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, carousing, and lawless idolatry. I d they didn't mention orgies, but it probably would not have been off the table. All right. And I spoke against this. I attacked no one. I didn't speak against any person. I didn't tell anybody what to do. I just spoke the truth, and I said the results of this proposed law are going to be bad for the community, especially it's going to objectify females. As a result of saying that, I was vilified. My mentor at the time was a guy named Neil Ashcraft, and he said something that really lightened my load. He talked to me about 1 Peter 4.4, and Dr. Ashcraft said this. He said, Wayne, the whole reason they feel the need to slander you is that they are scared. And the reason they're scared is that you are a living conviction who won't go away. Close quote. Why, why do your old drinking buddies make fun of you, even though you still love them? You don't sin with them, but you love them. Why, why do the people at school call you intolerant, even though that's in no way true? Because you're a living conviction that won't go away. Now, we're not always going to see a positive payoff on this earth like, like we did with that law in Frisco, which thankfully did not pass. Gandalf stood up and said, you shot, and it, it stopped. But, <laughs> but no matter what happens here, the eternal payoff will certainly come. Look at verse 5. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Here's the third step in living like people who are finished with sin. Remember the judgment of non-Christians. At the great white throne, Jesus is going to judge those people who rejected him in this life. Here, here's the scene that Peter's referencing. Revelation 20, this is John's vision. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to, you expect here to hear, the book of life. Ah, they were judged according to their works that were written in the books. This is absolutely fascinating. Their reason for judgment, the whole Bible makes this clear, the reason judgment is the lack of faith in Jesus. Their names are not found in the book of life because they rejected Jesus' offer of eternal life. However, that's not how the Lord's going to communicate with them. God the Son is going to meet people on their own level, showing them that their own sin has earned them eternal punishment. Think. Think about what human beings do. Every single human being in all of history, they get into groups that do this. We make up false gods... And then we assume that those gods are going to judge us according to some kind of balance of good or bad on earth. This is what people do. Basically, that's all religion. Good, bad, based on what you do. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says by trust in God. But people don't like that. That's not the way that seems right to us. So we want this good, bad. So with that in mind, look at what Jesus is going to do. You say, okay, you want to be judged according to good, bad? Let me, in the immortal words of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie True Lies, show you that they will all bad right? They will all bod. <clears throat> there's, no, there's no balance on your scale. You're all bad. Peter reminds us that Jesus is worthy. He's willing. He's waiting to fulfill his great white throne judgment of non-believers. Now, we who believe in Jesus are not going to be a part of that judgment. We have our own rewards judgment, which is serious enough. And while we prepare for that, we need to remember that the people who slander us, they are facing a terrible fate. We don't need to punish them in return. God's got that covered. Read Paul's summary with me. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, all together. The quote, by the way, is from Deuteronomy 32. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. 
because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Amen. How can we live as ones who are dead to sin? Number one, avoid the usual lust. Number two, remember you are always in a battle. Recognize the reason for rejection is slander. Number three, remember God is going to handle non-Christian judgment. And number four, be comforted that we live we live in the Spirit. Verse, verse 6, look at verse 6. For this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the Spirit according to God's standards. Now, the, this verse seems a little confusing to our way of speaking because here's what Peter does. He switches back to discussing Christians directly. Those who are dead is us. He, he's talking about Christians who reckon themselves as dead to sin. Peter comforts us with the truth that, that though believers are physically, you know what we are physically, we're dead men walking. But we, we escape judgment and we are alive in the Spirit. The world and its standards, the world's standards aren't our life anymore. We, people might judge us, look what he says, according to the fleshly standards of the world that change every day, but that means nothing to us. That's not where our life is based anyway. That, do you know how much the world's standards mean to us? As much as they do to a dead person. They mean absolutely nothing. We live differently every day because we have a higher calling. We live in the Spirit. That means this old life, this old life just does not fit us anymore. As Paul puts it in a parallel passage, Paul says, Take off the ill-fitting old life, the old man, and put on the life in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Have you ever worn clothes that really didn't fit you? It's not pretty, right? I hope you have friends who love you enough to tell you it's not pretty at all, right? In the same way, the old life doesn't fit you anymore. And when you try to wear it, you look ridiculous. You may, you may think you look cool. I have a newsflash. You look really stupid, okay? Folks, we follow Jesus because His righteousness fits us. It's comfortable to live in the Spirit. Look at our notes. Great comment by my old hero, Alan Stibbs, taught for years and years in London. He said, thus the tables are turned. Whereas those whose lives here in the flesh are governed by the lusts of men will after death face judgment. The, those who here and now embrace the gospel not only pass in this life beyond the judgment due to sin, but we also begin to enjoy a new spiritual life which abides beyond death and qualifies for fellowship with God. All God's people said, amen. Now, Peter spends the rest of this middle portion of his letter describing further what a finished with sin life looks like. The, the next four transformative practices, those are the first four. Here's the next four. They're found in the next paragraph. Go to verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since, quote here from Proverbs 10, love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, just like the first four, these are not a series of regulations. They're instead a call to exciting activities. This is active listening and, and that call includes an alertness for prayer in verse 7. Uh, my pulpit team partner, David Wade, said this about verse 7. The best advice, David said, that I could give anyone who wants to live out the reality of this passage is to pray it for yourself over and over and watch it slowly and surely become reality in your day-to-day -day life. Amen. 
be alert and sober-minded for prayer. The Greek word's really, really telling here. Uh, Sophronisate. Sophronisate, that may sound familiar to some of you. Uh, it's a form of the word that is part of the backbone of Frisco Bible Church's annual theme for 2021-22. The theme verse for that annual theme is 2 Timothy 1.7. Let's read it all together. 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. The, the word form of it in, in Timothy is discipline. The word form of it in 1 Peter means alert. The ideas are related because they're from the same root. By the way, this root word is one of the oldest words in all of human language. It's one of the oldest words we have in Greek. It, 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 it's so far back. It's in our earliest manuscripts, and it, it, means, to, it means to think. It, it, it means sound or, or wise discernment, judgment. Here's what it's a word for wisely doing the most important things with discipline, all right? Now, the other word choice is, is equally serious here. Nepho is the root term that we translate sober-minded. It's, it's a great contrast with the alcoholic debauchery that Peter mentioned earlier. But, but Nepho's more than just not drunk. Um, listen, by the time Peter wrote, Nepho was being used figuratively, not just literally. And figuratively, Nepho means the unequivocal antithesis of mental fuzziness, the unequivocal antithesis of mental fuzziness. It's a word that was used in, in Latin texts, not writing in Latin, but people who wrote in Greek, which they did all throughout the empire, about how children were to behave toward their parents. Every week uh, in a Roman family, every child had to come before the pater familias, the father of the family. Uh, if the father had died in war, it would be the grandfather, but somebody was in charge, and they would receive their weekly chores. That was not a time to be... Um, to be flippant. You were to be nepho. You were to be sober-minded and pay attention. Um, the father instructed in the Roman family, most people don't know this, the schooling, much of the schooling was done at home, and it was done by the father, which is what this relief celebrates. You were supposed to be nepho there. Nepho was a term that was used of people who served in Roman civil service. There were times during the Republic when the Republic was very healthy, and nearly everybody at some point in their life served publicly. And nepho was a word that was used for you because you were supposed to, it was expected that you would do that well so that people and property and finances were well cared for. So Peter's not just talking about not being high. He says that when Christians are fuzzy about the truth, when we're too busy to think straight, we're in no position to approach the Father. Alert, disciplined for the most important things, sober-minded, not fuzzy. For what? For prayer. We read earlier from a book by Ben Patterson. He went on to say this about prayer. Uh, this is right after that story we read earlier. He said that, expecting battle is spiritual realism. And realists that we are, we do something else. We pray. The command to pray is one of the few truly central and radical things God has called us to do in this spiritual warfare. It's central because it stands at the hub, the heart of our struggle. It's not all we're to be about, for there are many other wonderful and critical things to do in this spiritual warfare. But these great things are to prayer with the spokes of a wheel are to the hub. When the hub weakens, the rest of the wheel collapses. The elders of the first church in Jerusalem understood this when they got so busy feeding widows and orphans that they weren't praying as they should. So that's in Acts chapter 6, by the way. So they reorganized the church and delegated that feeding program to others, not because it was beneath them, but because it was so important. This is brilliant. Look what he says. If prayer was crowded out of its central place in the church, so too would be the widows one day. We must pray. Now, I know that. I, I know, I look at this text and I say, I know, I know the end is here. Je Jesus is going to return. 
in holiness. Everything that needs to happen for that is on the stage. However long he chooses to tarry, Jesus is coming back. I know that. And yet, I don't know about you, I tend toward idiotic pride and a myth of self-sufficiency. You know what that means? Sometimes I stop being alert for prayer. And that lunacy causes my whole life to stop rolling. The wheel collapses without the hub of prayer. A life finished with sin is a life of prayer and of constant love for each other. Verse 8, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Love here is agape. Remember, agape is self-sacrificial, other-centered, unconditional love. Self-sacrificial, other-centered, unconditional love. That's to be maintained constantly. That's not possible. That is not humanly possible. No one can do it. You can't, no, not even you. You can't do it. You can't, I don't care. No parent can do it, no matter how much you love your child. No, no friend, no teacher, no mentor, no servant, no sister. No one can do that except for God. God the Son, Jesus, lived agape love. God the Father is love. That's what John says. God is agape love. God the Spirit invests agape love into Christians. It is only by the power of the triune God that any human being is able to really pull this off. And what happens when we partner with God and we really do maintain agape? Look at what it does. It covers a multitude of sins. That's what love does. I was in college when my friend Pam got married. A whole bunch of us came home to, to help her family get everything together for the reception <clears throat> her dad wanted to do everything himself because he was a notorious skinflint, my kind of guy. He hated spending money. And, um, and so I arrived at the, at the church and was put on strawberry duty. And, uh, and that was with her dad, who, who was a surgeon, by the way. And so I was thrown in with the doctor to do strawberry duty. And I said, well, wh what do we do in strawberry duty? He said, you sort the strawberries. There were mounds of these beautiful, delicious strawberries. And, uh, and they were all great. We we had to make sure. We sampled and made sure. And, um, and, and he said, okay, look, some of them are absolutely perfect. They're just perfect. Others have got little imperfections. The strawberries were fine, but they had weird wrinkles or a little white spot or something like that. So I spent all this time sorting them out. And when I was finally done sorting all the strawberries and he was working with me, I looked up and I said, okay, doctor, what do we do now that these sick patients have been diagnosed? And he looked at me and he, he said, oh, son, now we practice Proverbs 10, 12. And he went and got this huge tub of dipping chocolate, and he said, we cover a multitude of sins. <laughs> and we dipped chocolate on those imperfect strawberries. When you and I maintain love, it covers sin. Now, sometimes it's your own sin. Some, sometimes you're showing love as a way to heal a relationship. Sometimes the sins are by others, and you show them unconditional love, forgiving them, because that covers sin. This has got to be our practice if we want to live as people finished with sin. Amen? Now, reread verse 9. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Gracious hospitality is part of a life finished with sin. My family hosts people in our home often, a number of times every week, and we love it. It is a joy to bless people with, with our home and with hospitality and with food and with love. And we have grown over the years to really, really enjoy the variety of people that come into our home, Christians and non-Christians and kids and old people and everything in between. Um, but I have not always been able to do it without, what's that last word, everybody? We've hosted life groups uh, a lot of times over the years and uh, small group Bible studies. And there's 
There's a moment before every life group meeting where you have to stop whatever it is you're doing and you have to get up and you have to go clean the house. Even if you're like our house and it stays picked up all the time, you still got to do some cleaning before people come, right? And I would tend to complain in that moment. I'll never, ever forget the most graphic moment for me. It was before life group and I was thinking about how much I did not want to get up and go vacuum and clean the bathroom so that people could come over and make it dirty again, right? And, and so I had, I had said, right? But you make your bed, young man. So there we go. Anyway, um, so, so I decided to pick up my book I was reading at the time by my all-time favorite uh, mystery writer. Uh, and I was reading my book, and I was deep in, you know, there's not like a mystery. This draws you, and I'm reading my book, uh, chewing on my bookmark like a normal person. And, um, and all of a sudden, the alarm went off. My alarm went off, and that was my drop dead, this is the time, you got to get up and you got to go clean the bathroom. And, and I rudely told the alarm to shut up and I, I wa- I'm just going to read a little more. And I went back to my book. Now, I was reading Too Many Cooks by Rex Stout, whose hero is Nero Wolfe, the greatest detective who ever lived, right? And this, this is the very next thing I read. A guest is a jewel on the cushion of hospitality. This nonfiction guy, written by a non-Christian, understood Peter better than I did. And I put the book down and I got up and cleaned the bathroom, all right? Fictional characters do better than we do. A finished with sin life is hospitable without complaint. And such life practices giving as God's steward. Go to verse 10. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards. A steward, by the way, is somebody who manages resources. It's not that they just give everything away. That's not good management. They, they, they deal appropriately giving out as they should. As stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides. Stop there. God gives all kinds of different gifts to different Christians at different times, and those gifts are, used, are to be used to serve others. We are blessed to be a blessing. The Apostle Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So also you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. I was working on my very first book, which was a spiritual gift assessment uh, examination. And Dr. Dwight Pentecost, uh, one of my professors, was very, very kind. And he helped me work through the basis of God's gifts to Christians. And as we were talking, he turned to 1 Corinthians 14 and he commented on it. And he said this, Wayne, don't miss the object. Gifts are never meant to build up the possessor of the gift. They are for the edification of the church. Why is that so important? Because once I, once I start holding my gifts really closely, hoarding them, I will inevitably begin to fall back into sin. It is a fact. I will become idolatrous toward things. I, I will become consumed with myself. I'll be myopic. Think, did God make all of us wealthy just so we could purchase things? Things can be fine, but the main purpose of his provision to all of us is to edify his church, to build up the church, period. And that's true no matter how much wealth one has. I have spent most of my life well below the poverty line, and I will tell you, if you are giving your church nothing out of your income, what are you thinking? You, you probably, all I can assume is you think that money's yours. I got a newsflash for you. That money is God's. 
And he expects you to use it wisely as a good steward. That means you steward it according to what Scripture tells you. So, so you use it to care for your needs. Use it to enjoy. God. He gave us all good things to enjoy. You enjoy God's blessings, and you build up the church and its work, period. And the same is true for every gift, not just money. Your administrative capacity is not just for you. Your, your ability to start new businesses and create new ventures, that's not just for your businesses. Your, your, whatever your gift is, your, your gift of service, it's not just for your family. Your gift is for the Lord and to build up His church. If we want to leave sin behind, here's one of the most important things we can do. We can give our gifts wisely as God's stewards. Amen? All right, let's remember where we are. Each of us is learning today about how to live in light of the realities that First Peter describes. There's three of them repeated in the book, three and three. Self-discipline, following Jesus' example, and suffering for righteousness. That's what we're learning about from this middle section. Here's how we begin. Avoid lust. Recognize that you're in a battle, the reason for your slander. Remember the judgment. Live in the Spirit. Be alert to pray. Constantly love. Practice hospitality, no grumbling. And give as God's stewards. But that's not quite complete, is it? There's one more question. I know it's in many of our minds. You're asking it in your near wolf imitation. Why? What is the goal, Archie? Why are we doing this? Great question, Nero. Thank you for asking. Living like this allows praise to go where it belongs. This is the most important, per this is the most important part of the whole passage. Here's the purpose of being finished with sin. Read the end of our text. So that... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. Peter says, so that God may be glorified forever. This is the why. This is the only appropriate motivation. Do you know what you can do? Look, I can do all eight of Peter's practices and still miss the point. I, the point is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He initiates He's the one who opens my ears to the text. He provides. He rescues. He's love. He's the Lord. He alone is worthy of praise and power and glory forever. If I'm living, listen, don't just take this and turn this into some kind of checklist. If I'm just living the, to be finished with sin so that I can have a better life, I miss the point. And I will inevitably flag along the way. Even if I'm living for other people or society or the church, it's not enough. I will not succeed in being a person finished with sin unless, remember Psalm 40? I come. I have to come to God. Only He is the right focus for my living out loud, my listening, for my praise. Let's stand and sing about that together. Stand with us, please, and let's sing praise to the Lord, the Almighty.
seated. We all feel the pressure to be liked. In our social media saturated culture, image is everything. There's so much pressure to pose and edit ourselves, to show our best angles, tell the best stories. We're masters at self-branding, but sometimes our real life doesn't fit the image we want to present. So we filter, we hide. We use so many filters to hide that it's hard to recognize our true selves. The good news is that God sees through all of our filters and still loves us. He has called us to live authentically, unhindered by our sin or the disapproval of others. But how does this actually work? Listen to what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Living the life God has planned for us starts with seeing God clearly, getting rid of the things we think about God, the things that distort our view of who he truly is. When God starts coming into focus, everything looks different. Isn't it time for your students to see through God's eyes? No filter. It's time to stop hiding and live unhindered. Good morning, my name is Summer Sipes and I'm the student ministry director here at Frisco Bible Church and I am here to invite all students grades 6 through 12 to our winter retreat January 14th to the 16th and you can register online. Um, if you don't have a student in that age bracket, I would beg you to pray for us because this is a time and space where our students really um, go deep and make life decisions that impact who they are in Christ. Um, they invite friends who come and are um, introduced to Christ for the very first time. So if you would pray for us, if you are in that, that category, I want to personally invite you to join us. It's a great time to build community, um, to really figure out what your relationship with Christ is, and um, I think you'll have a lot of fun. So uh, please register online, and that is all I have. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you, Summer. It is... <clears throat> it is amazing that uh, the retreat is already completely, uh, host homes are done, food is done, and uh, it is a real blessing. Um, in just a few weeks, it's going to be Christmas Eve. Oh, it's awesome. <clears throat> it's greatness. And uh, these, I just, these are beautiful. They do really, as always, beautiful job. But uh, there's door hangers, something we haven't done in a long, long time, sitting out there in the foyer. Uh, I think most of them are at the info booth. They're scattered around on the tables. Grab a handful. Uh, put them all over your building. Uh, put them, put them in your at work. Your neighbors just invite people to come join us. It has the info about the Christmas Eve services. They are always so very special, and we see people come to faith in Jesus Christ every year at that service. Not to mention that all of us are richly blessed by it. So grab door hangers, and um, if you have friends who are in the first hour, feel free to tell them because I forgot. Prayer team, why don't you come forward, uh, please? You guys all stand. Our prayer team would love to go before the Lord with you. Skylar and Phyllis are precious people with whom to pray. I recommend it highly. And you can come join them right after I dismiss you. Now may you and I go in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by his agape love, may we reckon ourselves as alive to God and dead to sin, finished with it. Because that makes all the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, friends, so much.